Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Robert Hilburn, and you're listening to Rock and Roll Archaeology. Have a great day. Pantheon Podcasts presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. You may find yourself living in a shotgun shack, diggers. Christian Swain here. In the Pantheon Podcast HQ of San Francisco. Back after a couple of weeks of vacation and a little head straightening. Uh, No soapbox today, okay? Uh, And for all of you who care, and there are many of you, I am doing pretty good. I do want to get back to the happenings at Pantheon, though. A lot is going on. We are growing every single day. Uh, We had our biggest month ever in August, so I cannot thank you diggers enough. And most importantly, we have added several new shows uh, filled with rock and roll goodness for all of you to enjoy. 24 and counting now, um, both in our magazine format of the Big Pipe feed and also in their own individual feeds. Options for all. All can be found at wherever you get your favorite podcasts, uh, like where you are listening to this program right now. Please sample the wares and get back to us on what you like or uh, maybe don't like. Find everything at either PantheonPodcast.com or the old RockAndRollArchaeology.com website. Uh, either of those addresses gets you there, okay? Speaking of Rock and Roll Archaeology, <laughs> we have a new episode in production that should be out in the next few weeks. It is a big one. It's going to be about two hours long, and uh, this is only part one of the story. Yes, a story so fucking big for us that we just had to break it into two parts. Which probably means the whole thing will be about four hours long. (laughs) And you know what? It should be. And we think you, RNRAP diggers, are going to love it. The title is Episode 18, 1969, Part 1. It's... A big year in rock and roll. Maybe the biggest year ever. 
Here uh, is the verbal trailer for you. We start at 3 Saville Road on January 30th, 1969, when the Fab Four take an unusual stage together for what becomes their last time. From there, we examine the Glimmer Twins having to make a tough decision that leads to a death, but sets them up for world domination as the greatest rock and roll band in the world. Mick and Keith add a hotshot guitarist to take them into the 70s, and also a new drug buddy, cowboy junkie, uh, that will add a new wrinkle to their already expanding influences. The New Stones lineup takes the stage in Hyde Park that was planned as a coming out party and wound up as a memorial. Then it's back to John, Paul, George, and Ringo as things go from bad to worse, echoing what is happening to the culture as well. And we leave you with the greatest achievement of humankind and how it inspired a new and upcoming set of rock and rollers. All of this is part one. We can't wait until you all get to hear it. Nugs.net is the live music app featuring over 15,000 shows from your favorite bands on demand and ad free. You can listen to a show from last night or from 40 years ago. You can download music to listen offline and create playlists to share with your friends. I have spent far too many hours watching bands I love on Nugs.net or sometimes uh, just picking shows and letting it play in the background as I work on uh, the episodes for you diggers. As live music fanatics like us, the folks at Nugs.net are offering our listeners a free 30-day trial. Listen free for 30 days and cancel anytime. Visit Nugs.net slash digs. To get started, again, that's visit nugs.net slash deeper digs, and that'll get you started. All right, let's get into the program. Uh, we are headed across the pond for this one. I love the sound of breaking We are going to talk Nick Lowe today. Uh, for those of you who are also fans of our Rock and Roll Librarian show, you may know we just broke down the book, uh, Cruel to be Kind, The Life and Music of Nick Lowe by Will Birch. Well, today I'm going to dig even deeper by interviewing uh, the author. Nick Lowe has referred to himself as the least hardworking man in show business. Not, not sure if that is a fair label, but given Nick's wry sense of humor found in his songs, um, he's probably half joking and half serious. 
Nick got his start out of the early British pub rock scene, uh, one of those subculture rock and roll genres that one might think would have gotten huge, uh, but in the end spawned more for the next wave, or what might be called the new wave, with you know guys like Elvis Costello, Ian Drury, and even Joe Strummer uh, began his career uh, as part of the 101ers in the British pub rock scene. So that uh, is the genesis of of Mr. Lowe, who was a big part of the close-knit and localized scene uh, with his band Brinsley Schwartz, named after the guitarist. Uh, to his uh, befuddlement and, and mine, <laughs> we will get into the whole pub rock scene, uh, which is a new fascination for me. Nick makes the transition from pub rocker, uh, both as a solo artist and as part of the seminal band Rockpile with other pub rocker Dave Edmonds, along with drummer Terry Williams and Billy Bremner on guitar, which was a band uh, and also the same guys for Dave's and Nick's solo albums uh, made around the same time. We will get into all of that as well. So the late 1970s and early 80s were peak Nick Lowe as pop star. Of course, there's uh, the whole stiff record story where Nick is the uh, house producer, if you will, which includes the Dam's first album. After the limelight waned, Nick moved on, uh, and as he matured, uh, so did his songwriting. But uh, everything was now at a Nick Lowe pace. Again, uh, we will talk about that evolution and his pace and what is up with his band Los Straight Jackets and the Mexican wrestler masks. Yeah, go look that up on YouTube. Will Birch is not just an author of rock and roll books. He, too, came from the pub rock scene, most notably as the drummer for the Cursal Flyers. He then was a part of the power pop group The Records uh, that had a minor hit, uh, Starry Eyes, in 1978. After The Records ended, he moved into the producer's chair, and then in the 1990s, he tried his hand at music journalism, culminating in the excellent uh, book on the pub rock scene, No Sleep Till Canby Island, and also also a great biography on Ian Jury, Ian Jury, the definitive biography. Um, but today it's all about his new book uh, on his friend and fellow pub rocker released on September 9th, 2019, Cruel to be Kind, The Life and Music of Nick Lowe. So let's get into it here. All the way from England is Will Birch. Welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock, Will Birch. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, thank you. The sun is shining and um, I'm speaking to lots of people about my biography of Nick Lowe, which I quite enjoy. 
Yeah, yeah, this is going to be a great discussion. So let's get into it. It uh, it seems that a lot of what you write about, uh, including the, the current book on Nick Lowe, comes out of the British pub rock scene of the early and mid-1970s. So can you tell our diggers, uh, what we call our fans, a bit about this influential music scene? Yeah, I mean, I, I write about it because of the old cliche, write what you know. Right. Um, so it's semi-autobiographical for me. Um, I used to, when I was a teenager, I played in um, groups going way, way back and always dreamt of becoming, um, well, I guess you'd say a, a pop, pop star. star. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. of course, of course. Um, uh, but really becoming a, what they call a professional musician and my instrument was the drums i wasn't a particularly good drummer but i did have the ability to hustle and organize and try and make things happen but the problem was back in the i'm talking now about the late 60s early 70s uh it was a catch-22 situation you couldn't get a record deal unless you had an agent therefore playing live and you couldn't really play at the prestigious venues let's say unless you had a record out so you were reliant on favours or there were one or two friendly agents who might get you. I mean, I remember doing the odd gig opening for people like Edgar Broughton or Fairport Convention or those kind of bands that were around on the scene. But we could never really, really break through. And it was very frustrating. And in the uh, music paper, The Melody Maker, mm-hmm. uh, famous. English paper. Yes. In the back there, they had uh, classified ads. Uh, they had a musician's wanted column. So people would advertise. So I'd see advertise, you know, drama wanted. And I used to phone up and go for ludicrous auditions where I didn't stand a chance of getting the job. But I just wanted to be on, on that scene. Um, when the pub rock scene broke in the early 70s, I guess, 72 73 was the was the key year really suddenly anything became possible it opened up the scene completely because it was in london it was almost only in london it wasn't a national thing it was local to london uh, there were about four or five key venues which were public houses that would put on live music and previously they would have had jazz for example still do some of them um not too much rock music and there was a few key characters who hustled this scene uh key character number one would be dave robinson who ma- managed at the time brinsley schwartz uh, with nick lowe in the band as you know mm-hmm. um and one or two other die davis who also he worked had worked with david bowie he was very well connected. He managed uh, Ducks Deluxe and later went on to manage Brinsley Schwartz. So Diane Dave and a few other characters drove around London looking for likely pubs to persuade the landlord, as they called it, to put music on several nights a week. So this circuit built up very quickly. Uh, you probably know the names of the key bands, Brinsley Schwartz, yeah, Ducks yeah. Deluxe, Bees Make Honey, an American group, Eggs Over Easy, mm-hmm. at a pub with the Tally Ho, Kilburn and the High Roads with Ian Dury. They, these groups, they were very diverse in the, their music. Some played R&B, some played country rock, some played almost folk or jazz. But the thing they all had in common, they, were, they weren't amateur musicians, but they were living on a shoestring. You know, they, they might have got a, a record deal, but 
nothing, nothing, no hit records really. So it was kind of an underground scene. But what was great about pub rock in London in that period was that the venues were very small. So maybe you're talking maybe a hundred uh, in the audience, maybe fifty, a hundred, and. The audience were very, very close to the stage, very close to the action. You'd be standing there with your pint of beer. You weren't able to applaud with a clap because you, you had a pint of beer in one. <laughs> uh, really, truly. And you would be three feet away from a legend like Ian Dury yeah. sweating in front of you with Kilburn and the High Roads. And a little bit later, Dr. Feelgood, Mm -hmm. uh, with Lou Brillo at the microphone. I mean, this was very, very exciting stuff. And the uh, the record companies gradually picked up on it and it opened it up. But when it kind of peaked, I mean, my own group at the time, Curzel Flyers, uh, we were lucky to get on that circuit. Um, I, we got on it because I, I happened to... Uh, um, get the doc, uh, Dr. Feelgood, their very first London gig. Oh, you, you did? Oh, okay. I, I did, yeah. I had a, I had a friend, um, a mate of mine, who I used to go to rock shows with, who uh, used to go up to London. Uh, I used to live outside of London, and he, he worked for an agency who booked some of these, uh, well, booked bigger stuff, really, but got involved in the pub circuit. And... He said, look, Dr. Feelgood were playing locally. I used to run a little club with a mate of mine, Paul, who was the singer in the Curzel Flyers. And we used to put the Feelgoods on. Uh, also, Mickey Jupp would play as well. Um, and we're talking now 72, early 73. Mm-hmm. And the Feelgoods were, with Wilco Johnson on guitar, of course, were very, very exciting, I thought. Mm-hmm. And I pestered and pestered and pestered this friend of mine, please, please, get them a gig and it was Di Davis who I mentioned a moment ago who managed Ducks Deluxe who called me up one day and said I think we've got a a spot in uh, July summer 73 I'll put your group on because Ducks Deluxe have had to cancel something so I've got a night so we all went up to London for this (laughs) momentous event Dr Feelgood's London debut of sorts and um there was only about 30 people in the room and they didn't go down terribly well, but Di, Di Davis could see something there. And within six months, the Feelgoods were the hottest band on the scene. And when I got the Coastal Flyers going, he helped us onto the London pub rock circuit. But what I was going to say is no sooner did it all get going by the early part of 75, it was kind of all over. Had, had run its course, right. It had run its, that's the good way to put it. I mean, mm-hmm. Brinsley Schwartz broke up, mm-hmm. the Ducks Deluxe, and all these bands all imploded in the early months of 75. And then no sooner had that happened than punk rock was knocking on the door, you know, the following year, Yep. Um, which was incredibly exciting um, scene, really. And um, Can I ask, I, I think, uh, uh, didn't Joe Strummer actually start in the pub rock scene? Yeah, Joe Strummer... Um, played in a in a london uh, i guess you'd call them a pub rock group and he um he he was around you know joe joe wasn't he was a little bit older than some of his sort of punk contemporaries uh, yeah, born yeah, early yeah. 1950s so he'd been he'd been doing it for some years so uh, joe and there's a few other characters like that who kind of emerged in the pu- punk scene but the really key 
key people like the Damned and the Sex Pistols, the Buzzcocks from Manchester and the Clash. They were the four really hottest groups. Really. The English punk scene, yeah. yeah. The English punk scene. Mm. But of course, it was all going on in the States as well. Yeah. with New York, yeah, CBGBs and, uh, oh, well, and all that, and then yeah. even L.A., uh, uh, yeah. the, the early L.A. scene. So, um, yeah. uh, so you know, just but before we get into Nick himself, just some, you, know, you know, you were deeply involved in the scene. That's part of the, the credibility here. Uh, you were a part of uh, the Curse All Flyers. Um, so, you know, what were your influences on drums growing up? Well, um well, funnily enough, I did a, a, a radio interview in London today with a few people talking about the book. We're talking about my Nick Lowe book. And on the panel of interviewees actually was the daughter of Ginger Baker. Oh, wow. Uh, a lady called Nettie Baker who writes. Who I believe uh, turned 80 yesterday. Uh, well, funnily enough, somebody on, sitting around the table this afternoon said, and how old is Ginger now? And Nettie said, mm, 80. Uh, uh, so, yes, 80. Um, so, in answer to your question, uh, Ginger Baker <laughs> was, was, was an influence on me. I mean, the, I guess, obviously, Ringo Starr and Charlie Watts, and before that, The Shadows, Brian Bennett, Tony Meehan. But I, the guy that really uh, rang my bell was Keith Moon. And um, Keith Moon... Ah, the lead drums. The lead drummer, Keith Moon, wasn't really a drummer. Keith, what yeah. Keith Moon was, he was the front man of the Who. Yes, yeah. Much, much to Roger Daughtry's disgust. Uh, yeah, yes. Uh, he just happened to hit drums, but yeah. he was the front man. Um, when I was very young, um, I was in a group, um, uh, a local group that used to play youth clubs, what we call them here, and the odd pub. And um, in October 1965, uh, we got a, a job uh, opening for The Who. Wow. Um, yeah, I was about 16 at the time. And um, they just put out their second hit record, Anyway, Anyhow, Anywhere. They'd been on the TV in, in the UK doing My Generation. Top of the they Pops. Hadn't yet, yeah. They hadn't yet released it. Mm -hmm. They'd done it live, but they hadn't released the single. It was about a month before... My generation came out, and we got this gig with The Who. Um, there were three bands on the bill. We opened, there was another group in the middle, and then, of course, The Who. And um, I stood, I mean, I remember sharing a dressing room with, with The Who and Keith Moon. Uh, I, I can remember everything vividly. He, he had a, his suitcase. He opened his suitcase, and he had an axe uh, laid across the top of his clothes. <laughs> and he had a little... He had a little... Uh, portable uh, record player that played 45s and he, and I played bet he was two, playing surf music right we played two songs two discs back to back non-stop one of them was um dancing in the street mouth and the vandellas oh, and the choice. other one was beach boys don't worry baby right he played them non-stop anyway um i stood and watched the who from the wings stage left so i'm i'm watching uh, i'm three feet away from pete townsend uh, who has had three Reckenbacker guitars uh, that two of them were held together with with bolts? Yeah, and the road the roadie would come on out of destruction, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. And he, he, but he had guitars for smashing and guitars for playing. I yeah. sussed that 
And he also had speakers with big white crosses on the back. So the ones... Those were the ones that you slammed into, right? Right. They were the dummies, the dummies (laughs) that had no speaker cones. They were just boxes. Um, But uh, Keith, excuse me if I'm going off on a tangent. No, this is good. This is good. (laughs) (laughs) But Keith Moon, um, so they're playing and... Uh, I, prior to that, I stood in the wings with John Entwistle watching the middle group, and I said to John Entwistle, are you going to play My Generation tonight, John? And he said, no, no, it's not out. We're not promoting it. We're still promoting anyway, anyhow. Anyway, Keith Moon uh, proceeded to smash his uh, drum set up. It was a Ludwig kit. It was before he got his deal with Premier Drums. And their roadie um, came to me and said, oh, he's just smashed his snare drum can we borrow yours Uh so uh, yeah so i I thought wow keith moon's gonna play my drums i said yeah all right so the first drum went on anyway over the course of about three songs he had about three of my drums and a couple of my cymbals to replace his which he he actually threw his drum parts into the at the audience he threw heavy drums through the air at human beings standing <laughs> 10 feet away. It was the most exciting thing you can imagine. At the end of the show, uh, with my drums in, in bad shape, I went up to the roadie and I said, um, I said, you said you would uh, pay me if he damaged any of my drums. And he went, fuck off. <laughs> hey, the memory, the memory alone was payment yeah, enough. Yeah. I dined, I say dined, I coffeed out on that for months, you know. <laughs> I'm so, sure. So, and yeah. answer your question, Keith Moon, then Ginger Baker, and later others, obviously. All right. uh, and then when, when you switch to writing, because you, you now are a professional writer, uh, do you have uh, influences or, you know, is this something that just uh, internally you, you kind of just focus uh, you know, as as we said earlier, you know, you write what you know. Uh, or did you have journalistic uh, influences? No, I didn't. I, I didn't really. I mean, I, I used to, well, I still do write song lyrics um, and have done, uh, which I, I kind of think I'm fairly okay at. You know, I've written a few good, good lyrics. But as to writing prose, um, I used to write stuff to fanzines, but it wasn't until Mojo magazine here in the UK when it launched in 1993, the editor, Paul Dunoyer, uh, asked me if I would write uh, an article for their uh, opening of their Virgin uh, launch issue. Um, uh, then he wanted me to write a, uh, a, a, an article about the local scene where I live in Essex in Southend near Canvey Island. Um, which gave rise to Dr. Feelgood, Curzel Flyers, Mickey Jutt, Eddie and the Hot Rods, etc. Um, and I loved, I was so flattered, um, so I wrote the article. And then for a few years, I did quite a bit uh, for Mojo on a freelance basis. And then somebody said, well, you should write a book. So that became the pub rock book, No Sleep Till Canvey Island. Yeah, Till Island. Right, 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 right. Yeah, and then later I did a biography of Ian Jury. The- Ian Jury, yeah. yeah, and then of course Nick. So that's all. I just write about stuff I, I love. I, mm-hmm. I don't, you know, no, I'm not a professional writer, really. I'm just a fan. Who- hey, you're getting paid. You're a professional. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So let's get into uh, the subject of your latest book. So what is the first thing that comes to mind when you think of your friend of 40 plus years, Nick Lowe? Well, apart from the size of his nose, um, 
<laughs> and his and his and his charm and his his sincerity and he's, he's a damn good bloke. Um, I think of his songs really, and, and I I try to figure out how on earth he can write the way he does. Um, because, in my opinion, uh, he's quite unique in the UK. Yeah, um, in some got- circles, he is considered, uh, you know, the the best uh, songwriter to come out of uh, Britain. Well, you've obviously got, you know, you've obviously got Paul McCartney and John Lennon, and <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, you've some, some stiff competition, them, sure. Some fantastic, but but from the sort of less well-known batch of writers mm-hmm. um, who have been around for a long time, he's he's certainly up there. I think most people regard him as... A true craftsman. A pretty good writer. Mm. Um, it's a bit of a, uh, a bit of a mystery. Well, I like a bit of mystery. I mean, uh, how he actually sort of does it, what his process is, and how he achieves these... Uh, songs and he's told me um, some of the, his methods, if you like, without sort of giving the game away too much. But he's sort of indicated how material comes, how he gets inspired, and then how he dedicates time to working on it and reworking on it and honing it until it's ready to uh, play to friends or to consider recording or playing in a show. Um, so he's got this process and. As you say, some people do regard him as probably, well, certainly one of the best songwriters in the UK of of popular music. Um, But there are plenty others who have had many, many more hits, you know, (laughs) and made a load of money, um, but not necessarily with craft. It's a difficult, it's a difficult thing to to assess, really. So, but that's what I think about. I, I think about his songs, really. Now, now Nick was a, a military brat, and and that does give him a, a unique upbringing. So, can you tell us about Nick's early life? I, I believe his father's name was Drain, uh, yeah. and uh, and his father uh, was a professional uh, uh, military officer, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Nick's dad, uh, his name was Jeffrey, and his middle name was Drain, Jeffrey Drain Low. Uh, he came from a Scottish family um, who, as going back several generations, um, were, um, I won't say destitute, but they needed, they needed help with their um, lodging and so forth. And they were taken in by a Scottish doctor whose uh, family name was Drain. Uh, and he looked after the kids and said he would like them to um, use the word, use the name Drain as a middle name. Mm. So down the generations, you had you know Fred Drain Low, Bill Drain Low, whoever they were, and then you had Jeffrey Drain Low, which is Nick's dad. Je- Drain, let's call him Drain, um, was um, a very um, interested in aeroplanes and flying as, as a teenager. He worked on an airbase just sweeping up um, in the 1930s. And then uh, the advent of well, – he joined the RAF, actually, as a, as a young uh, conscript when he was about 17. And then in 1939, as we know, a war broke out, and he trained as a pilot, and he flew missions um, over Europe, Germany, in the early 1940s, uh, he survived a crash landing 
when he dumped his airplane on a, on a beach in the northeast coast of England. Uh, th- three of the um, occupants of the plane survived. One guy died in the in the cr- in the crash. And he so went he, on. So he was a bomber pilot. He was a bomber pilot. Yeah, he was, and he he achieved high rank. Um, when he stationed at a particular airbase around 1940, he met his wife to be Pat Thatcher, Patricia Thatcher, who was a young uh, RAF girl. Now Pat came from an entirely different background. She came from a family of entertainers. And she, in fact, she yearned to be an entertainer herself, but because war broke out and everybody had to get down on the war effort, yep. uh, it curtailed her career. Um, she married Drain, um, and um, some years later they had a daughter, and then Nick was born in 1949. Uh, but Drain stayed with the RAF. He was no longer, the war ended, so he was no longer flying bombers. But uh, they they put him they brought him into the office almost as an administrative uh, person. Mm-hmm. He, he was quite highly decorated as well, you know, um, uh, by the Queen uh, for his war efforts, and he achieved high rank and he had all the badges and medals and everything else. Uh, but he hated um, what he called um, civvy street, in other words, civilian work. So although he was still in the RF, he was sitting behind a desk and he, he hated it. But then uh, in the 1950s, uh, during the Suez crisis and some of the other events that took place, he, he was uh, posted out to Jordan um, to um, oversee the security of the young King Hussein of Jordan. And um, Nick, who was then about seven or eight, I think, um, went out with him. So Nick lived in Jordan uh, for a couple of years. Then they went to Cyprus. And this was was Nick's formative years. So we're talking here before rock and roll. Yeah. When I say rock and roll, I mean Little Richard and Elvis Presley. We're talking here 54, 55. 56, the Elvis records are coming through. And Nick's on these air bases where there's also a lot of Americans. Americans, right, yeah. Yeah, because although the war had ended long ago, the Americans were still supporting and helpful. And the, he, he rubbed shoulders. and all that, yeah. Yeah, he rubbed shoulders with the American culture. And he, and of course, um, Forces Radio would play American music. Quite, they would play Frank Sinatra and Doris Day, obviously, but they would also play country music. And Nick got to hear quite a lot of those records. The one he often mentions is Tennessee Ernie Ford, uh, and and oh, some country. other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of country. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that made a huge, huge impression. I was saying to somebody yesterday that what a lot of people kind of overlook when they think about the impact of of American music on British kids in the 50s was uh, contemporaneous with the music was the cowboy movies. Now, if you're a Uh, 9, 12-year-old, you see a guy with a Stetson on and maybe he's strumming a guitar on a horse. That's a romantic image, I know. But um, that's not a long way away from from country music. So they kind of go hand in hand. The Ballad of Davy Crockett would be another example of a big hit song in in the 50s which had a rock and roll edge in a, in a, a way. I'm describing it badly, but 
you know, well, it was music geared towards youth culture. For, uh, it was. Uh, yeah. some, of, some of Elvis Presley's early 45s had very graphic lyrics. You know, I'm thinking of something like, for example, Teddy Bear. Mm-hmm. You know, the songs from Loving You, for example. Uh, they made a huge impact on us young white kids, ranging anything between sort of eight and 16. So on the top end, you had your Van Morrisons and your Pete Townsends and your John Lennons. Uh, and then at the lower, slightly younger end, you had Nick Lowe and people. So that American thing, and it, it was also the time when we discovered chewing gum and uh, you know, jeans, uh, you know, blue denim jeans, for example, which were very, very exotic, you know, <laughs> if you had a pair of jeans when you were sort of 11 or You 12. were in the cool club. You were in the cool club, yeah. And we still, we still seek those jeans. <laughs> the elusive, the elusive. <laughs> the, 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 Levi's, yeah. right, right. Yeah, so that was, that was the kind of atmosphere that Nick grew up in. Uh, but because he's, parents moved about so much in the with the royal air force mm-hmm. um when he hits what you call what you call it secondary school age upper school mm-hmm. when he hit 11 12 he couldn't be overseas he had to go into a proper school and he went into what they call a boarding school so you you you, you stay you live there and you got your education of sorts there and the raf because they um recognized that the children of officers that were being moved around the world all the time, their children was education would suffer. There was a grant from the government to help pay for their education. So someone like Nick was able to attend a school that his parents wouldn't otherwise have been able to afford. Oh yeah. Uh, okay. What we call it, you, you call it, well, we call it a private school. I think you call it we call I don't know whichever it is public. Yeah, public. Uh, we call we call it private school. Private. You know, it's we call it public. public. Yeah. It was a minor public school we went to uh, at the age of eleven, twelve. And at that school, one of the other boys, well, two years older, one of the other boys, keen on music, was Brinsley Schwartz, the man who later formed the group of the same name with Nick. Um, mm-hmm. So that's where Nick's yeah. uh, early musical. Uh, career kicked off at school and Nick being a fantastic show off obviously like nothing less than fronting these amateur sort of skiffle groups and getting up uh, at the school concerts and doing well, you've answered my next question would would it be safe to say he was a born performer oh yeah yeah that was yeah, the definitely. easy part he didn't have to learn to do that no, he had had some encouragement because when his parents were in Germany um, around that time, when Drain was stationed in Germany, um, Nick was in the school, in, was in school in England, but in the school uh, holiday periods, vacation, um, he'd get, say, a month or six weeks off school and he would go out to Germany to be with his parents and it was there in that culture of the officers' club, if you like, that Nick learned how to work a room. Uh, the the Drain Lows uh, had a, a residence there. I believe they had a, a, a cellar, like a basement bar, where they would entertain people and have card games and come around and drink. And Nick would, uh, as a sort of age eight, nine, get up and sing um, Lonnie Donegan songs with his ukulele. Oh, and, Rock Island line. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, all of that. 
that's that's the stuff and nick honed his very early honed his skills there on how to entertain but he he says you know he told me when i was interviewing him for this book um but he said my dad would always give me a look uh, occasionally and uh, he would sort of signal when he, I, I learned to know when it was time to stop. When it was you time know. to get off the stage, leave yeah, them wanting always, more, right? Always leave them wanting more. <laughs> and when you see Nick today doing one of his solo acoustic gigs at, at a club somewhere um, in front of an appreciative audience, it's not an overly long show, one hour, 20 minutes with a couple of encores. You always want a bit more, you know, but he, he times it really, really, really well, I think. And I think he learned that skill uh, out in Germany in the 1950s and early 60s. So we, we, we talked to, you know, some of his earliest musical influences were, you know, American music. And it seems like he, unlike a, a lot of uh, the English rockers uh, that I've talked to, uh, gravitated more towards the country side of, uh, of things than the, you know, the Little Richards, uh, Elvis Presleys and things like that. And I'm not saying that, that that didn't also influence, but he also had this other wrinkle that I don't think translated uh, quite as much to some of the other uh, guys or contemporaries of his. Yeah, yeah. He, as I say, he'd heard the country music on the air bases in Germany. Um, so he knew who Johnny Cash was and Johnny Horton and some of these characters. When he uh, went to school and formed the group with Brinsley, they started off playing skiffle or shadows, instrumentals, Cliff Richard type yeah, yeah. stuff. But when the mod, what we call the mod scene, sort of hit the the, the um, suburbs or hit the the outer, outer reaches uh, of the UK, I, I would say sixty, late sixty three, early sixty four, um, you had the American influence of Motown and soul music uh, came in. Uh, so he he jumped on that bandwagon pretty quickly. Wilson Pickett, Otis Redding, Sam Cooke, etc. Um, but a bit later, in the late sixties, you had the American country rock uh, scene with the Birds, uh, Crosby, Stills and Nash on the edge of that scene. Eagles, etc. Graham Parsons, that yeah. Graham Parsons, of course. And what you really did have was the band. So the bands were what Brinsley Schwartz, when Brinsley Schwartz got together after their disastrous launch in 1970 in New York, which everybody seems to know about. They, they came back home and started a communal lifestyle uh, and they pared down their music. And, and it was the band that really influenced those first two band albums, which is kind of country music. So... Uh, it's the uh, it is what what you know what what we now call Americana. They're kind of like yeah, the godfathers yeah. of, of that, where yeah. they delved back into uh, uh, you know older uh, American music and then you know gave it a new rock spin uh, when uh, you know when they split from Bob Dylan and uh, you know formed their own thing. You know, they, 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 along with uh, you know their their upbringing uh, you know prior to Bob uh, with. Um, uh, Ronnie you know, Hawkins with Ronnie Hawkins exactly yeah. so yeah. so so now um, uh, Nick's uh, like uh, original instrument of choice was the bass uh, and I understand he plays it in a unique way can we talk about that well I'm not a I'm not an expert on 
uh, bass playing, but um, he plays, when he plays rock and roll music on his bass, he uses a, a, a thumb pick. Now, I don't mean a loose plectrum that you hold between your thumb, thumb and forefingers, which some bass no, players uh, Yeah, do. almost like a, like a, uh, like a, a, a banjo player. Yeah, well, a banjo player, not a finger picking banjo player, but a, yeah. but a, yeah, and um, he favoured the percussive style or sound that that gives over and above the bass players who play with their fingers, yes. who are many, obviously, Jaco mm-hmm. Pastorius and everybody else. But he played it with a plectrum, uh, but he plays it with a, I believe it's called a thumb pick. Mm-hmm. So. It, it's on a little. Um, I, I, I don't know what the technical term is, but it's on a. It, he winds it around his thumb basically, so it doesn't fall on the floor. So this thing is attached to his thumb, but fairly rigid, so he can percussively hit the notes. And um, I had the pleasure of um, interviewing Ry Kuda for the, the Nick Lowe biography, who explained to me uh, what this was all about, <laughs> and. Uh, he he loved that in in Nick. He he thought that um, it uh, it delivered a, a kind of a, a percussive quality, but also a, a swing that you don't as easily get when you play the bass in other ways. But hey, I'm not a I'm not a musician bass player. I I don't know if I'm using the correct terminology. All I know is Nick has this thing attached to his thumb. Uh, it creates, it creates a, a, a different, uh, almost a unique sound uh, by by yeah. doing that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You don't see a lot of uh, bass players do no. that. No, um, no. It's either just a straight plectrum or, or pick, and or mostly fingers. I, I think I think if you're in the, in the recording studio making what, for one of better words, a rock and roll record, um, I would say a bass played with something physical produces. It's ideally suited to making a rock and roll record. I think the, the plectrum or the pick, yeah, that's that's what I've learned. Yeah. Now he's also uh, known as uh, quite the rhythm guitar player as well, right? Yeah, he is. He, I think he'd always played well as his first instruments back in the in the days of uh, the German air bases was a, a ukulele banjo, which his grandmother gave him. His second instrument was a round-bodied uh, banjo ukulele. Um, uh, before he moved on to guitar, so I think he had a guitar, an acoustic, t- not a toy guitar, but a very crude guitar before he went on bass. When he was at school with Brinsley Schwartz. Um, and he wanted to play a bass, probably because the group needed a bass player. I mean, it could have even been as pragmatic a choice as that. I don't know. He his first bass was made in the school wood shop, and you know, one of the boys got his saw and chisels out and created this bass, which was Nick's first bass. And there's a picture of him using it in the photos section of the biography. Um, but yeah, later on. So through Brinsley Schwartz and through early Rockpile, he's the bass player. Um, but after that period, when he went out solo uh, with a band, he would adopt electric r- rhythm guitar, really, if you want a better word, like a Fender a Telecaster, instrument of choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, or if playing solo, it would be a, an acoustic guitar. Mm-hmm. And there are even clips of him playing solo using a bass, which is quite unusual, but he has done that. 
I, th- I think it's quite funny. He played a, a Warner Brothers um, convention around about 89, 90 when Party of One came out. And he introduced, he, as he was strapping the bass on, he said, here's something you don't see very often. And it was a guy singing five or six songs accompanying solo, solo bass, right, right? Yeah, yeah, very, very <laughs> quite, quite good actually. Yeah. So as we, as you've mentioned the name, and his first foray with the record machine was with Brinsley Schwartz, uh, and as we've established, who uh, was a childhood uh, friend from school, uh, hence where the name of the band came from. Uh, I think the original band was was called Kippington Lodge, right? Kippington Lodge was their yeah. 60s incarnation. And then when the scene changed in 69, Crosby, Stills, Nash, the band, etc., uh, they wanted to get with it. Uh, so they wanted a name change. Although Brinsley himself uh, didn't like the idea of the band being called Brinsley Schwartz, but he was outvoted. And that. <laughs> And that's that, unusual. Yeah. Usually, you know, the ego takes over and says, yes, darn it, it should be named after me. So, yeah, I don't, for, think, yeah. I don't think Brinsley's that kind of guy. <laughs> and um, uh, so in 1970, they're hyped by their managers and they yeah, secure yeah. A, a debut concert at the famous <laughs> Fillmore East. Yeah. So how did that go? Well, hmm. I think about this all day long, actually. Um, I, I, I'm not sort of over-plugging my earlier book, No Sleep Till Canvey Island, but when I wrote that, which is nearly 20 years ago now, I researched uh, that whole topic um, quite de- in quite detailed uh, form and interviewed lots and lots of people who either uh, made that trip happen or were, in fact, on that trip. Uh, they... Uh, had got a record deal while they were about to get a record deal. This is um, as, so they're no longer Kippington Lodge. They've done the name change. They, um, Nick's written eight songs and they're about to record a debut album. And their manager, who's Dave Robinson, uh, was charged with getting them a record deal. And he went to United Artists in London and the A&R guy, who's Andrew Lauder, um, had seen them play at a show in London and quite liked them, but he wasn't convinced. Anyway, Dave hustled and hustled, and um, the the management company, uh, they wanted to get the group away. Uh, they wanted to get some income in the form of a record advance for various reasons, which I won't detail here, but... Um, the priority was to get them a record deal. So the, it, they planned that the way to attract attention to this unknown group was to launch them in the, the biggest venue that they could find. Um, and one of the bright sparks in the office said, well, the, you know, obviously the biggest uh, shrine to rock and roll in 1969-70 was the mm-hmm. film mm-hmm. Uh, New York being a little bit closer than San Francisco. Um, they... Um, they focused on the Fillmore East in in uh, New York City, and um, they had to get the gig. Now, Dave Robinson had had some contact with the late Bill Graham, who was the owner and promoter yep. of, of that venue. When Dave Robinson had been a roadie for Jimi Hendrix uh, back in the late 1960s, so Dave sort of had some contacts. He phoned Bill Graham up, and it's a long story, but. Long story short, they got the, they got the gig, 
two nights, uh, two shows over four nights, so four shows over two nights, I should say, opening for Van Morrison and headlining the Quicksilver Messenger Service. And um, so they, they secured the gigs. On the back of that, United Artists signed them to the record deal and scheduled the release of the album they'd been recording. Uh, gave them um, what would today be, I don't know, about 50,000 bucks uh, advance, uh, which was a, quite a lot of money in those days, still is. And um, the priority was to get as much publicity for this trip as they could. So they needed an airplane, and they didn't have, although they had the money from the advance, they still needed favours. Uh, Dave Robinson apparently knew somebody at Aer Lingus Airline, and he blagged a, a plane on the basis that the plane would be full of journalists. So for a mere £7,000, he got a charter flight New York and back uh, on the basis there would be up to 200 journalists. And these weren't all music and media journalists. They had guys there from, you know, I don't know, Pets Weekly and, you know, Dark Players Monthly. And as long as they were journalists, they were <laughs> That's involved. all that matters. As long as yeah, you had a business you know, card, you were on. Yeah, there was the Jewish Chronicle and they were, they were all on this plane. Well, if you, if, if nobody's heard this, if you've heard this story before, you don't need me to repeat it. But if you haven't heard about it, it is detailed in, well, it's quite well detailed in the Nick Lowe biography. But long story short, the, the trip was a complete disaster. Um, the only thing that didn't go wrong was the plane didn't crash. But other than that, <laughs> other than that, other than that, uh, uh, you know, emergency landings, the band couldn't get in because they didn't have the work permits. They had to come in via Canada on a microlite plane. Um, they made it just in time. Um, the journalists obviously all got drunk on the plane over. Um, it was a complete nightmare. And to compound, compound this uh, scene, the band were rubbish. And... They had no experience of playing on a big stage in a big concert hall to indifferent American audiences. And they were under-rehearsed, inexperienced, and they had technical problems, apparently. They, they weren't very good. Uh, and consequently, all the press reviews were terrible. Um, they were completely lambasted in the newspapers and music uh, journals of the day. Um, they were a laughing stock. Uh, and that was nearly the end, except for the fact they said, well, we, we won't try this route. We'll, we'll, we'll try a different tack. And this is when they, um, you know, started to live in the commune and they turned in on their music. They became more introspective and they wanted to be the band and take the music right back to its roots and not try and be pop stars or rock stars. They wanted to make good, honest, down-home music, and that's what they did. And uh, I believe they actually did get to meet the band. In fact, I think the band used their rehearsal space, right? Yeah, well, what happened was the band in 74, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young played a big concert here in London in Wembley Stadium. And on the bill was Joni Mitchell and one or two other acts. And, on, and the band were on the bill. And um, one of um, the former, I think he was a former roadie for Brinsley Schwartz so he certainly contacted with connected with them 
um, was part of the organisation for this concert uh, in in line with, uh, I think, Warner Brothers Records or somebody. Anyway, they 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 tracked this guy down, um, and the band wanted to do a rehearsal for just a, a half a day uh, before they played on this huge stage in Wembley, and this guy in question. Um, uh, said, oh, well, I know Brinsley Schwartz have got uh, a big barn in their communal home. That would make a good, that which they use for their own rehearsals. So he phoned up and Brinsley answered the phone and said, uh, this guy Martin said, um, um, the band would like to come and rehearse at your house. Nice. <laughs> um, and Brinsley Schwartz thought he said a band, so he didn't take much oh, notice. Oh, he didn't realize and, it was and, uh, the band. <laughs> yeah, the master says, no, the band. So Brinsley sort of gets very excited. Yeah, yeah, send them down. Here's the address. Then he goes into Nick and Billy and Bob and Ian and said, um, okay, uh, we've got somebody coming late, late today to use the rehearsal on. Um, it's going to be the band. And... Uh, Apparently, everybody started making sandwiches, <laughs> cleaning, you know, sweeping the floor. <laughs> right, right, then, right. Making everything, everything look presentable, right? Yeah, that's right. And the, the band did come, and they rehearsed for, I don't know, a couple of hours the day or so before this big concert at Wembley. And um, they left some of their bits, and they borrowed some of the Brinsley's um, amps and drums, I think. But uh, Brinsley says that, Robbie Robertson um, left the guitar lead, left his guitar lead behind, and he said, uh, I, I used it and I plugged it in. He said, but I still didn't sound like Robbie Robertson. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> they were so in awe of the band, I think, really. Yeah. So the band continues on until about 1975, uh, and Brinsley and Schwartz does have a few hits in the U.K., but I don't think they ever really translate over in America, right? No, they didn't. Uh, there was a brief period where they, just before they broke up, um, they were in discussions with Island Records, mm. um, and there was a plan to relocate them to the USA, but that didn't happen. Um, so they, they disbanded, um, and they didn't, other than that Fillmore trip in 19, uh, 1970, yeah. uh, I don't think they, they ever... Uh, Went back over to... to they never the performed shows. in Europe. But they did do one big UK tour opening for Paul McCartney's Wings in uh, 73, um, but Brinsley Sports, unfortunately, were they were a cult favourite who made some great records, but they never really made it with the big general public. They were a, sort of a cult act, really. Um, yeah, so it, it just was, wasn't going to happen. I mean, they you know they gave yeah. it a good five uh, plus years. Sure, they did. Uh, and uh, you know, I mean, uh, you know, uh, uh, it's not like they weren't a known quantity. Uh, it just you know the, the 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 various dominoes that needed to fall just never did. Right. That's right. That's yeah. right. No matter how hard they tried or how hard they didn't try. However, they were promoted. They didn't. It didn't translate into uh, pop success. So Nick Lowe, well, all of them were really at a loose end then. Um, but uh, 
um, Bob Andrews, the keyboard player, and Brinsley Schwartz, the guitarist, uh, wound up in Graham Parker and The Rumour. Uh, Billy Ranking uh, uh, did some stuff with a band called Tiger. And Ian Gom uh, had a little bit of success in America with a solo record uh, as a solo artist. But Nick was at a loose end, uh, but he was now managed by uh, a guy called Jake Riviera. Yeah, we'll we'll get into that in a second. But before we yeah. leave uh, <clears throat> Brinsley, I want I want to ask about the re- the writing of a particular song, Nick Penn's, uh, that will become huge uh, a little bit later in our story when it's covered by uh, one Declan McManus, and that is what's so funny about peace, love, and understanding. Yeah, Nick wrote that um, when he was still in Brinsley Schwartz. It was uh, the opening cut on their final, uh, the last album they released, which was produced by Dave Edmonds, and that's how uh, Dave, uh, Nick kind of bonded with Dave over that album. Um, And Dave did one of his typically brilliant production jobs. So the Brinsley Schwartz recording of that song is extremely good. Um, but didn't do the do the job really. Um, but Declan McManus had been a fan of Brinsley Schwartz, and when he hooked up with uh, Stiff Records in '77, uh, uh, in, in around about '78, he decided he was going to r- cut his own version of "What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding," which I think is the version. A lot of people in America will be probably more familiar with. Um, yeah, in '79, uh, said Declan McManus, aka Elvis Costello, Elvis covers, Costello. covers what's so funny about peace, love, and understanding, uh, and has a big hit. Uh, so much so that the song is now pretty much his, like uh, like Aretha doing "Respect," which is you know originally an Otis Redding song. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so why do you why do you think that version took off as opposed to the Brinsley version? You know, we we have our own ideas, but uh, what, what what do you think uh, well, on your end? Well, I think that um, Elvis's version is very exciting. Uh, it's a little bit angry. You know, his vocal is he sounds like he really means it. Um, so he's singing what is still obviously a very very good song, um, and. Elvis, at that point, was starting to get notoriety. Uh, I think it just chimed with his sort of persona and his his image at the time and the kind of music he was putting over around the time of this year's Model Armed Forces. Had a fantastic band in Pete Thomas and Co. Very, very, very exciting. I mean, one of the guys I spoke to for the biography, um, uh, a, a rock uh, journalist. Uh, I, I was asking him about about this subject. Really, and he said the problem was the Brinsley Schwartz version sounded like it was a little bit of a Mickey take. You know, the bit in it where Nick says, "I just want peace for the children of the new jet." The spoken bit, you know, in the middle yeah. of the Brinsley song, is a bit sort of tongue in cheek um, send up, really. Um, that, that was sort of a way Brinsley Schwartz were quite self-deprecating and 
perceived by some people perhaps as not taking things seriously enough. Whereas Costello just rips it apart. You know, it's very, very exciting. Um, yeah, um, I just I just got to see him do it myself about two weeks ago. So uh, well, yeah, pretty great. pretty amazing. So all right, so <clears throat> Stiff Records, uh, legendary in the late seventies rock and roll out of the UK. Um, tell us about that label. This is where we get into Jake Riviera and Dave Robinson. Yeah, well, um, after the Brinsley Schwartz broke up, um, Jake sort of assumed manager management of Nick Lowe. And Nick was only too pleased to have somebody organise his life for him. And the two would spend a lot of time over glasses of cider, um, planning and plotting how they were going to revolutionise the music industry. And Jake was full of energy and full of ideas and witty slogans and, you know, doing things. They both... They both knew things were about to change. I guess it, it was really punk rock, although they weren't part of the punk scene. There, there, there were vibrations, you know, that something's coming and what's it going to be? And they, re- they recognised this and so they wanted to do something different. Um, and they, they, after talking to one or two independent labels in America, like such as Berserkly Records in San Francisco, they decided to do it themselves. So they said, let's form a record company. So they spent days and weeks dreaming up the name, and Jake came up with the name Stiff Records, and he changed his name from Andrew Jakeman to Jake Riviera, in much the same way as Dexter McManus became Elvis Costello. Mm-hmm. And um, Nick was going to be the guy who would put the first uh, record out. He'd done a demo of two songs, So It Goes and Heart of the City. At that time, Nick was uh, at a bit of a loose end. He didn't quite know what to do. He did tour managing for Graham Parker, Dr. Feelgood. He 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 did the Bay City Rollers' um, We Love You song to try and get out of his United Artists record contract, which was still running. Uh, he was doing all kinds of crazy stuff. So I mean, he wrote a song for my band at the time, Curzel Flyers, a song called Television, uh, which Dave Edmonds later covered. Um, he was just going around London trying to get his songs covered, trying to get production work. And it was obvious that they needed a platform. I mean, there were probably record companies that might have signed Nick, but none of them would have been... Uh, funny enough, if that's the right term for for Jake Riviera's taste, Jake wanted to do it his way. <laughs> so they had the idea of it being stiff. They didn't have an office or a, or a desk or a phone, other than Jake's uh, apartment. Uh, and at that time, Dave Robinson was managing Graham Parker and the Rumor. So Dave Robinson reappears on the scene. Uh, they meet over a drink, and Dave Robinson says to Jake, "Look, I've got a spare." desk at my office i've got two phones you can have one of them why don't you come and 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 together they forged stiff records with nick's so it goes being the first 45 release and um they found declan mcmanus who one day walked into the to their office to try and buy a copy of Nick's single. That was the purpose of his visit. But he also had his guitar over his shoulder, ready to sing them some of his songs because he he wanted a record deal as well. And it all came good. Nick produced The Damned, who released the first punk rock 45 in the UK, New Rose. 
um, and several other people appeared on the scene. And suddenly, Stiff was a happening label. Now they weren't having big hits, but they were getting a lot of coverage in the music press of the day. Yeah, and, they were leading edge. Yeah, and back in '76, the New Musical Express, the Melody Maker, Sounds, these publications were selling triple-digit subscription every week in the UK. They were big circulation papers with very good writers, people like Nick Kent, Charles Shaw Murray. Um, we all read them cover to cover. Nick yeah. Lowe read them yeah. cover to cover. Mm -hmm. Nick, Nick would open his enemy and say to himself, now, let me see, what did I do this week? You know, <laughs> his personal diary. He was all, Nick and Elvis, all those guys who were all over these papers in that period. Um, and, well, Stiff went on from strength to strength. But the following year, they did a UK tour um, with uh, Ian Dury and the Blockheads, Elvis Costello and the Attractions, Larry Wallace, Reckless Eric, and Nick Lowe as the five supposedly headline acts. Um, but on the eve of that tour, Jake and Dave Robinson had a major falling out and decided they were part company, but the tour had to go ahead. So there was a six or eight week period where they had to sort of put up with each other. Um, but at the end of that tour, Nick and Elvis went off to uh, Radar Records. And Dave Robinson carried on with Ian Dury and then later Madness. And he had a lot of hit records mm -hmm. with other bands mm -hmm. in the 80s. So let's talk a little bit about Nick as a producer. You mentioned uh, uh, The Damned, uh, yeah. and uh, Nick produced their debut album, Damn, Damn, Damned, and especially the, the now legendary single, New Rose. So give us an idea of what Nick's approach to producing is. Well, I think in that period, he was, I think he was mildly amused by the damn because they were very funny guys, you know, Rat Scabies and yeah. Captain Principal <laughs> were, were, were like cartoon musical characters. They were very funny guys. They were good, good players. Um, their music was fast and furious guitar rock. So they're a little bit punk rock, I suppose. And that's what they were branded. Um, they recorded in an eight-track studio called Pathway in London, which was a tiny, about as big as your bedroom. It was so hot in the summer and so cold in the winter that you couldn't possibly be in there for more than three or four hours. So they would get the stuff recorded as quickly as possible and then go and have a break in the pub over the road. Um, but this helped to uh, bring an immediacy and excitement, I think, to the recordings. Um, you hear it on some of Elvis's early stuff, Costello, which was done at Pathway. And you hear it on Reckless Eric, Go the Whole, whole Wide World, and some of the other stuff coming out of Pathway Studios. So Nick, I think Nick would get bored very quickly. He wanted a very, you know, a very quick result. He wanted really the band, whoever he was producing, to capture it on the first or if not the second take. And then having got the rocking backing track down with the drums, particularly in the bass, uh, he would then concentrate on maybe redoing the vocal or adding some guitars or some tambourines or whatever. But it was all, and it was all done on a budget. I mean, these records were made for hundred dollars. You know, yeah. they they weren't big budget <laughs> records. Yeah. They, they were very cheap to make, um, um, but they did. They create a bit of a noise. Um, I think later on, uh, Nick 
realised, I think perhaps through Dave Edmonds' influence, that you had to take a little bit more care uh, over your record production. And Dave Edmonds was, of course, a, a fabulous uh, producer. And Nick learned a hell of a lot from Dave Edmonds. Uh, you see it uh, in the documentary Born Fighters, where they're recording their solo records in 78, I think, um, 79. Um, so Dave was an influence. And the record companies, by this time, Nick signed to Columbia in America, and they, they want something with a bit of polish. So Nick had to um, apply himself a little bit more, and he worked with some great recording engineers as well. But Nick's masterstroke, really, as a producer, was more of a psychological exercise than it was a musical exercise. And his job, really, was to motivate the group uh, to uh, do their best possible performance. And he would, uh, I think manipulates too strong a word, but he would, he would manage the situation in one way or another to get the band to do their very, very best. And Chrissy Hine plays tribute, pays tribute to this when she talks about working with Nick on uh, Stop Your Sobbing uh, a little bit later. Great. So, and, and also Nick's the, Nick, Nick was very funny in the studio as well. He would keep the spirits up. He would always have a, a sort of, not a joke, but he would always have a, a sort of a catalogue of uh, comments he would make that would everybody would be rolling around laughing. And it was always good fun. His sessions were always good fun. Uh, let's uh, let's get to uh, his solo career uh, and and his debut solo album uh, Jesus is Cool, which yeah. is hugely influential. Uh, the album um, it seems to have taken a long time to be recorded. It looks like it was started in seventy six, seventy seven, and then wasn't released until March seventy eight. So there must be an interesting story there. Well, I think Jesus is Cool was made over a fairly long period by standards of the day and probably i don't know how they make records today but usually uh, in that period you know a group would have to make an album they'd go into the studio for three weeks or a month you know they'd make it start to finish come out and get mixed and it would come out he really pieced that record together over i mean i haven't really thought about how long but if if you think it, it includes or some of the versions of it include so it goes which was recorded very early 76 mm -hmm. and still mixing in late 77 you've probably got about an 18 month period over which those tracks were recorded uh, ready to come out in the early part of 78 um i don't well maybe some of his more recent stuff has been recorded in that way as well but his next record um labor of lust probably was a more concerted right. uh, project right. made in sort of two two-week blocks maybe but yes and and it was all evolving as well i mean there was so much going on in that period there was the stiff tour there was signing to in radar there was jake falling out with dave robinson there was all kind of fireworks going on so, and Nick was also, let's not forget, producing records for other people. Yeah, a so, lot of hats. Yeah, and um, Graham Parker and The Rumour, Dr. Feelgood. He was a busy boy, you know, <laughs> so obviously it would take, his, take him a year or more to f finish the album, yeah. 
So on that record is a you know an amazing song called uh, "I Love the Sound of uh, Breaking Glass." Can you talk a little bit about that and the the creation of that song? Well, I think that uh, you know um, David Bowie uh, released uh, his album "Low" in 1977, and on that uh, I think there's a track. Is there a track yeah, on that called "Breaking Glass"? Called "Breaking Glass," <laughs> right? And and that album was full of new noises i mean yeah, I the ambient uh, you know uh, brian yeah. Eno and all that yeah yeah it was recorded in berlin or somewhere and craft work yeah. were big and it, it's a very sort of electronic influenced quite a, it's a very good very good record and some great songs on it but um i think it had it made a big impression on nick i think he he realized although he it wasn't the kind of music he wanted to make I think he could see that, hey, here's a guy doing things differently, and that would have appealed to him. And I think subconsciously that uh, I love the sound of breaking glass. As a title, may have even come to him when he was listening to David Bowie doing a song called Breaking Glass and perhaps said over a coffee, hey, I love the sound of breaking Oh, that's a oh, song. Oh, that's a title, right? <laughs> yeah, that's my, my kind of theory. Mm-hmm. Now, at that time, Nick also made his EP uh, with Mary Provost on it, and that um, he 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 called um, uh, he he called it Bowie B O W I and left the E off. And right. The joke being right. David Bowie had made an album called Low and left the E off, which is classic stiff humour, classic Jake Riviera of that period, and um, so that was that kind of Bowie connection. I always thought, I mean, I'll get my knuckles wrapped for saying this, but um, some of Nick's songs uh, do um, echo uh, previously written songs by other artists. I think we all acknowledge you can hear in some of his songs bits that subconsciously perhaps come from other records. And quite a big record around that time was um, Peter Gabriel had a song called Salisbury Hill. Yeah. I don't, know if, I don't know if you know it, but it was oh, a big... Oh, I know it very well. The guy from Genesis. Yes. And if you sing uh, Salisbury Hill to yourself, it's not a huge leap to sing the words, I love the sound of breaking glass, <laughs> to a very similar tune. I, I'll probably get sued for saying that. But, <laughs> um, you know, and Jake, there was this joke where Jake spread a rumour around the club in London at Dingwall's Club that, Hey, you know, um, Peter Gabriel left Genesis. Oh, Nick Lowe's auditioning for Genesis. And, oh, Jesus. <laughs> and some of the music journalists. Well, I do know that they auditioned uh, uh, quite a few singers uh, to replace uh, Gabriel until they decided that the drummer was good enough. Bill Collins, you know, quite. Um, so Breaking Glass, yeah. But Nick has always said that he, and I kind of agree, it's not a great song. It was a very good record, um, has some lovely bits on it, you know, Bob Andrews' piano and the rhythm section is f- very funky. And it's a, I love that, it's a nice, fresh pop record, but there's not much of a song there. So if you're going to get up with an acoustic guitar, there's not a lot to, to, to perform, really. Um, when he does it now with Los Straightjackets, they do it as an instrumental, and then uh, then he'll come on at the end of after he's had a little break to put a different shirt on. You know, he'll come on to the end, and he gets the recognition for the song, 
without having to actually perform. <laughs> well, I'm sure one. I'm sure he does perform another great song from that album, So It Goes, which oh, yeah. was used in the uh, awesome uh, movie of the time, uh, Rock and Roll High School. Oh, yeah. He opens now. Well, the last few dates I've seen Nick do with the Straight Jackets, he's, I think he's opened with So It Goes, but he takes it as slightly more... Uh, slightly slower, bit bit more mellow pace than he used to, but still a good song. Uh, discussions with the Russians and all that stuff. Yeah, and he uh, and uh, uh, does does he still uh, overemphasize the goes uh, uh, to us American ears? Uh, does he overemphasize the? The so word goes, because to us, when we listen to it, it's got that real, he's not hiding his accent uh, like a, a lot of uh, British pop stars oh, yeah, used well, to I do. would have to be over there to appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> All yeah, right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we got to get to the, the you, you've mentioned Dave Edmonds. So the, the complicated story of Nick's collaboration uh, with Dave Edmonds and the amazing rock and roll band uh, Rock Pile. Um, yeah. Why did Nick want to get back into a, a, a group? I think it sort of happened by accident, really. They, Nick and Dave, uh, Nick and Dave Edmonds would plot and plan in around about '76, about the time Stiff started. Um, about you know, Dave probably wanted to have a group a bit more than Nick did. But they decided they couldn't possibly form a band until they could get Terry Williams, who was then in a group called Man. The, the drummer, right. The drummer. And it wasn't until Man broke up that Terry became available. And then they needed another guitar player. Billy and Bremner. Several, yeah, several people were considered. It didn't work out until Bremner showed up. And, of course, the minute Bremner plugged in and sang uh, his whatever Little Richard song it was, it was clear that they had a third very very strong voice in on the front line there and and a guitar player who could give dave edmonds a run for his money um and it was too good not to do it so they did some pub gigs in the early part of 77 and then in the summer of that year uh before the stiff tour actually uh they they nick chucked it in uh, he did a big interview in the nme where he said i'm leaving rock pile you know i don't want to play all that old rubbish i think he'd had a drink and he was a little bit uh, overexcited in what he was telling the journalist uh, and dave edmonds he fell out with dave but they got back together on that stiff tour uh, where dave played dave played drums actually for nick on that stiff tour um and then after the stiff tour it got to 78 and nick had recorded uh jesus of call dave had recorded um uh, tracks on Wax 4, which I'm very, very proud to have a song on that I co-wrote with yeah, Dave Evans, yeah. A1 on the jukebox. And uh, The Road Called, and I think the the opportunity, well, they did do the tour in America with Costello and Mink DeVille. That was the first one. But then they started to get offers for opening for, they did a tour with Blondie. Yeah. And, and you know, Dave Edmonds' record company, Swan Song, were only too pleased to have him out on the road promoting these albums. Nick had signed to Columbia in the States. They also liked the idea, so there was probably a little bit of financial tour support. And they loved, I think they loved the road. I mean, I think they, they loved everything that it had to offer when they were young men. 
Um, and uh, so for two years or so, um, they, well, I think they became the most exciting four-piece rock group there has ever been. I mean, I nothing rocks quite like rock pile, but it's very... Um, it's very conventional, isn't it? It is really Chuck Berry played at a very fast tempo. That's not too. Uh, I still think it's a, you it's know, you, in you, any way, but you it's get not, these bands. You get these yeah. bands where, where, yeah, yeah. To your point, um, you know, it seems on paper uh, that it's uh, it's pretty rudimentary, but it, it, it's those four or five personalities. Uh, with their instruments that creates some magic. Uh, oh, yeah. Well. yeah, yeah and I, and I think yeah. that's the thing about Rockpile is that, yeah, is that yeah, these that, four yeah. guys just, when they came together, you know, transcended, uh, you know, to your point, uh, you know, a, a Chuck Berry-esque uh, rock outfit. Yeah, they did. And they also had some some great songs peppering the set. For example, Edmonds would do Girls Talk, which is written by Elvis Costello, as we know. And Nick would have some interesting stuff, you know, Born Fighter. They would do a Mickey Jupp song, Switchboard Susan. They had Light and Shade there, but they were quite a conventional rock group. But they had Terry Williams in the back driving the thing with thunderous drums that really would swing and they hit the drums really hard, and they couldn't help but rock. I mean, you could yeah, put, the original Sultan of Swing. <laughs> you could put yeah, well, you could put three school children in front of Terry Williams, and they'd sound pretty rock. <laughs> right, right. And they, Billy, you know, playing this fantastic guitar. Yeah, they were good. They were really good. Very exciting. Nick's next solo album is is, is a, not really a solo album. It's it's a rock pile album called Labor of Love, yeah, uh, which, yeah. which is still marketed as a solo album. Uh, like I said, c- complicated. Uh, yeah. on, on that album is Nick's most famous song and the title of your book, Cruel to Be Kind. Uh, it's it's also uh, the same personnel making Dave Edmonds' album, Repeat When Necessary at the same time um yeah. why and how did they do this well they they would uh, they had a studio they liked working in in london which was called eden studios and they used to block book the time so they would book uh, let's say a two-week period they would go in uh, in the evening so the daytime client who was recording there would probably be someone like uh, shaking stevens would be in re- making his recordings during the day and then at seven o'clock they would meet in the pub and then they'd start about eight and go on into the early hours of the morning. And when they went in there, they weren't particularly concerned with whether they were cutting one of Dave's tracks or one of Nick's tracks. In fact, there were some songs that they swapped about and both had a go at. Um, um, and uh, as long as at the end of the two weeks or whatever the period was, they came out with four new cuts each eight tracks let's say and then they'd reconvene a month later or something like that uh, the job was getting done um but they both dave dave had a, a recording contract with swan song had to deliver an album every year nick by now had a contract with columbia he had to deliver a record but they were the same musicians planet and some people have quite a lot of fun in making up sort of compilations of the best rock pile album ever drawing on the various tracks from the two or four or so albums made over that period 
before you get to the actual rock pile record itself. Right. Um, there's quite a lot of nonsense talked about, um, you know, they couldn't record as rock pile uh, because Dave was signed to Swan Song. That was really, well, I think that was just a convenient way of avoiding the the task in hand. They they could quite easily have made a rock pile record, and I'm sure that uh, Peter Grant of Swansong would be only too pleased to have put it out <laughs> yeah, in, the yeah. middle, in the middle of Dave's career because they were touring America and they were doing the business. Why wouldn't anybody want a rock? And if Peter Grant wouldn't pick it up, I'm damn sure Greg Geller at Columbia would have picked up a rock pile record. But it was convenient, I think, for them to say, oh, we can't make a rock pole. You know, I, I just think it was slightly, the truth was slightly twisted there. But, hey, I wasn't in those meetings with Jake Riviera and Peter Grant, so I don't know the full story. But that's my take on it. But but ultimately, Dave delivered, when Dave fulfilled his swan song contract, they were able to eventually record an actual rock pile album. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. All right, so back to the single, Cruel to be Kind. Uh, yeah. I, I, I want to talk about the video because it's highly personal in nature, and it's one of the first videos ever played on MTV, right? Well, it was played on MTV's launch date, which wasn't until, I think, 1981. Yeah, so two years later, mm-hmm. uh, they had a, uh, there was a list of about 100 videos they had on heavy rotation, and I believe that that was played th- about three times on that day. Um, but it was recorded 40 years ago this week, actually. Oh, um, wow. Carleen and Nick's wedding, or partially recorded at their wedding, partially recorded down the road, and then edited together. Um, people you know, the video was pretty memorable. I think people remember it. And, of course, the song was a hit record uh, around the world. And it's still Nick's biggest and best-known song, arguably, um, alongside perhaps Peace, Love and Understanding. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Carleen and Nick, yeah, their big wedding day. Yeah, uh, Colleen being uh, June Carter Cash's uh, daughter. Yeah, yeah, daughter of... Uh, d- daughter of um, June Carter and step of John Cash. Yeah, Yeah. that guy, that guy. We'll we'll come back to him here in a bit. Through through the rest of the early '80s, Nick is still playing the pop star game, Um, but it it seems each successive album uh, he begins to fade in that arena. Uh, First, uh, Nick the Knife, uh, the Abominable uh, Showman, uh, Nick Lowe and his cowboy outfit, and the Rose of England. What, what can you tell us about this period, and why why do you think Nick couldn't continue to capitalize on that early well, success? He, he, he was on a treadmill uh, to fulfill his contract, so he he could have easily taken a break, but he was on this, this self-perpetuating treadmill where the agent sort of says, well, look, I've got an offer on 20 dates on the West Coast mm. in yeah. October, and the money's good, put it in. Oh, we've got to get the album finished, yeah. crash the album out, yeah. do the tour, then another tour, and then, oh, then Columbia. Common story, yeah. Common story. Mm. Nick was also, um, I don't think it's any secret, I don't think I'm talking out of school here, he was uh, drinking fairly heavily. Um, and he was having, I guess, a bit of fun as well at the time. But... 
they were pushing they were pushing themselves too hard i i i think nick you know if you want to be critical about it nick the knife's got some great stuff on it i thought abominable showman was not his best record um um the the cowboy outfit that had some good stuff i loved uh, the next one would be yeah, I love. I think that's a great record, um, but there was a bit of indifferent material there, and he was uh, just getting fed up with it. And of course, Carlene was also uh, had a recording career and was also touring. So, as husband and wife, they didn't see a great deal of each other. Um, he'd come off tour, and she would go on tour, and so it went on for. Uh, a few years during the uh, mid 1980s that was the pattern yeah in the in the later 80s and and 90s he morphs into a more traditional singer songwriter mold yeah. and continues to find uh, a, a deep and committed audience um so let's talk about that transformation what was it easy for him well he um he 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 knew he wanted to change, and the, the first record he had a go at changing was the record Pinker and Prouder than previous, um, which I think he recorded around about eighty seven, eighty eight. Wasn't very successful uh, commercially. Got some good tracks on it, of course, and in that record he was experimenting with different ways of recording and taking things back to their. Um, back to basics and also trying to do some unusual stuff and break the recording rules like for example doing the vocal live with the backing track which was unheard of in those days you do the backing track and then overdub the vocal yeah um, recording the drums with minimal microphones didn't really matter as long as it would swing a bit and with bobby owen on the drums of course it did swing but it sounded like biscuit tins and it was a bit of a, I don't know, a, a, a sort of finger up really to the industry. Uh, and then um, along comes Dave Edmonds again, and they make um, Party of One. And this is after Nick's been to uh, California and done the record with um, John Hyatt and Jim Keltner. Um, and... Uh, He's got pretty much the same lineup on that. He's got Keltner on the drums on many of the tracks. Um, and, great drummer. Great drummer. Uh, and Ry Kuda. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and, and Dave Edmonds producing. And uh, that record has on it, of course, What's Shaking on the Hill and uh, All Men Elias. And, uh, oh, well, very, 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 for me, a very, very strong record. But probably his most polished sounding mainstream commercial album i would say probably alongside labor of lust and you hear the edmonds influence on it and i think they fell out here and there i think you know nick thought edmonds was over polishing it a bit and edmonds would get fed up with their slightly slapdash i'm using this words freely don't um pin me to what i'm saying but i think that there was a bit of a thing, oh, we'll go in and do it and knock it out. And Edmunds, being a perfectionist, he really honed that record, and it shows it's a brilliant sounding, to me, a brilliant sounding record. But having made that and done, he was done with that. Um, What's Shaking on the Hill, I think, is the track that points in the new direction. 
Um, but then some interesting stuff happens, uh, which you may want to ask me about, I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah. It, it is not as um, suddenly, um, out of the blue, um, peace, love, and understanding gets picked up for the, the movie The Bodyguard. Oh, the sound. yeah, that's uh, and, 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 and almost like, um, uh, you, you know, Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody, uh, which is not a hit in 1975 when it uh, uh, debuts. Uh, uh, it does OK. It's it's just not as huge as when it is picked up for Wayne's World uh, in 1990. Uh, oh. So similar situation uh, where now uh, 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 Nick Song is put in into a giant movie uh, and gets a second life, right? That's right. And um, sung by Curtis Stigers. Um, it, in fact, it was Curtis Stigers' doing that uh, got the, uh, the record on the, on the, on the soundtrack. Uh, Curtis Stigers uh, had a recording contract and um, I believe um, – What's the name of the uh, uh, Clive uh, Davis, the guy at uh, Columbia or, or Arista or wherever he was at that time? I don't know. He 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 was charged with musically yeah, super- Clive, yeah. musically uh, supervising the 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 the, the bodyguard uh, film soundtrack music, and they needed an up tempo track. And Curtis had been doing the song in his club act, you know, for a while. And uh, he played it to Clive Davis, and Clive Davis apparently, or Curtis tells me, that's the song we need. And so, bingo, it went into the soundtrack uh, album uh, for Bodyguard and apparently is the biggest-selling uh, soundtrack album of, of all, all time. time. Yeah. yeah. And they, they, claim, they claim it sold 45 million units around the world uh, it's bigger than Thriller, you know. It's bigger than Eagles hits. It's yeah, the biggest, greatest hits, yeah, yeah. Huge, huge record, and consequently, Nick gets a a nice a paycheck, decent, <laughs> a decent paycheck after what twenty five years of slogging <laughs> right. around. I often wonder what would happen if that hadn't have ha- happened. But to, with Nick's uh, career, I don't know. You could speculate, but. Um, what did happen, of course, it bought him the freedom to record at his own pace, in his own way. So he could take a little bit more time um, with the musicians he wanted to work with, a uh, bit more time writing the songs, uh, trying out different recording ideas. And out of this comes the Jesus of Call record. Um, a year or two later. And then, of course, there's this incredible series of records he makes throughout the 90s and the noughties where he's playing with people like Bobby Owen, Garrett Watkins, engineered by Neil Brockbank. And Nick's writing his, his, his best songs, I think, really, um, in that period. In the, in the later period. I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I really have to bring up an incredible collaboration uh, or, or, or more, a song that Nick spent over a decade writing for a legend, which, as we know now, uh, happens to be his stepfather-in-law, Johnny Cash. So let's talk about the song The Beast in Me. Yeah, Nick um, wrote The Beast in Me, and uh, he started recording it. Uh, sorry, he started writing it, I think, as early as 1979, um, and um, 
Johnny Cash and June Carter and their entourage play, paid Nick a visit to the home that Nick shared with his new wife, Colleen Carter. And um, Johnny liked what he heard, but um, it, it was unfinished. And it took Nick, uh, I don't know, eight, nine years or something to finish it. And apparently he says that Cash would call him up and say, is that song ready yet? And Nick would say, no, not quite. And then around about, uh, I think around about sometime in the 90s, Johnny Cash played in London and Nick and Elvis Costello got up and joined them for a couple of songs. And that night, John Cash said to him, he's still not finished that song, Nick. <laughs> and that was the night Nick went home and finished it and gave the demo to Cash, and Cash recorded it on one of those first, uh, is it American? American um, recordings. Produced by um, Shangri-La, oh, Beastie Boys. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm never going. You know who I'm with, yeah. The guy with the beard. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Uh, and um, then again, and that, that was used as, uh, for the closing uh, of the Sopranos uh, pilot, the pilot episode of the Sopranos over the f- f- closing credits, interestingly. Um, Rick so, Rubin. <laughs> Rick Rubin, that's God. weird, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. pretty wild. And, and I think they both, both uh, Nick's version and the Johnny Cash version came out in the same year, in 1994. Uh, possibly, yeah. I'm a little bit fuzzy on dates at the moment. Um, yeah. Yeah, yes, it, yeah, it must have been. That's right. But it did take a long time to finish, but it was brilliant. And, of course, uh, Cash had, had previously recorded... Nick's song Without Love, which was on um, Labour of Lust, I think. Um, so, and, and I think there were one or two other Nick songs in contention for Cash to record. When you listen to some of Nick's songs on his 90s solo albums, you do sort of say to yourself, I could really hear Cash singing this, you know? Uh, right, where, right. where is my everything? Or there's a few like that that he could have thought. The Man That I've Become would be another one. You could really hear Cash doing them. I have to ask uh, for our rock and roll librarian, uh, the single burning question for her, how did Nick chip his teeth and when did he get them fixed? Now, I had a feeling this question <laughs> was going to crop up. And I did, um, I thought I might ask um, him about it, but I haven't had the opportunity um certainly you see the chip front tooth or teeth on some of the record covers uh from the 80s don't you I think. yes yes isn't that terrible picture on the front of um uh, abominable showman maybe oh. that mm-hmm. there's one picture of them or it might be it might be nick the knife i can't remember where you really see that and of course when you see photographs of nick now his teeth have all been fixed up so I, I really don't know. I really don't know. Well, but, you will be sure to ask him uh, the next time I'll you get together him. for us. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll find out. And then looking at the reviews in the book charts, it seems there is a big resurgence in all things uh, Nick Lowe. So you must be pretty proud of that. Um, uh, 
but now, uh, you know, she's concerned it will be impossible to get tickets on the next tour. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> well, Nick's been playing some pretty low-key venues, although he does the business, doesn't he, when he plays uh, those. I mean, I've seen him, for example, at New York City Winery a couple of times. Mm. Um, and he'll sell that out three nights in a row, no problem at all. And um, I, I, it's probably not quite so easily in middle middle America. You know, it's always been the way, but certainly on the coasts and up in up in the, the northwest, uh, he does the business playing nice venues, intimate intimate venues, to about the right number of people, either solo or with the straight jackets at the moment, and. Um, he loves it, I think. Um, I, I don't think I don't think his thing could cope with becoming uh, on a bigger scale, like an arena act or something. Yeah, like I don't that. Think or, so. or the no, big sheds, like even Elvis is still out doing. Yeah, Costello. I mean, he did that tour with Wilco back in 2011, I think it was, and they were playing. I guess you'd call them arenas. You know, seven, eight thousand, that kind of scale. Yeah, ten thousand maybe. Mm-hmm. Quite big venues before you get to stadiums, um, arenas, and um, I think he enjoyed that tour, and it did him a lot of good. Uh, but if he's own under his own steam, I don't think he'd be terribly comfortable with playing in a a, a five or six thousand. I don't think it's. I don't think that's him. The smaller theaters is where he yeah, feels most yeah, comfortable. I mean, we've, got, we've got venues in London. Um, I mean, over the last 20 years, he's hardly in London. He's hard. He hardly ever plays the same venue twice. So if you think there's say 10 venues in London, still, still in business that could, that Nick could play and you could pretty much reckon it would sell out. They range from large clubs that hold maybe 600 through to quite big venues like the the biggest one would be the Royal Albert Hall, famous venue. Yes, capacity about six thousand. Um, he did good business there. Royal Festival Hall capacity about three and a half. He's done that two or three times, but he rarely returns to the same venue. So he tries them all out and he just goes around. And each year, oh, where's he playing this year? Oh, he's not played there before. And he generally sells them out, but they're not—they're not monster venues. And I would think it's the situation is similar in, in, in well, elsewhere in the world, particularly in America. Well, we'll be sure to save a, a seat for our rock and roll librarian here. So, for myself, <laughs> last question I have to ask: okay. Will Rockpile ever reform and tour? No. That's. Too short of an answer. Uh, the four guys are still around. Uh, you know, as we've discussed, uh, one of the greatest rock outfits ever. Uh, that is a shame. Well, when they get voted into the infamous Rock and rock Roll Hall of Fame, Hall of Fame, hmm. and, and and why isn't you could say why isn't Dave Edmonds in the Rock and Roll of Fame? But then you every year when the when the nominees come up, you know, I've got friends who, who vote on that and we sit around and have lunch and, okay, this year's nominees are, and the list has got sort of like the Cars, Todd Rundgren, you know, all these great 
acts or well-known acts, you think, you mean they're not in the rock and roll? I'm not, <laughs> not particularly run, and I'm not particularly the cars, but certainly like the zombies got in, didn't they? Yes. Um, which this was great. Last year, right, yeah. Yeah, this, this is great. Um, you know, who decides? Well, this big panel of voters decide. Now, if and when Rockpile get voted in, uh, and the guys are still standing. I dare say, for the crack, as they say, they'd get up and do a, two, two or three songs. But other than that, so uh, it's it, not a it's not a a complete no. There's a, there's a small crack opened. I, I think the only way they would get back together, all four of them would agree to get back together, is if there was a damn good uh, excuse or reason, like a, a, a very big flattering award like a rock and roll of fame that was probably going to be televised and and you would be i mean we've seen those groups haven't we you'd get the rock and roll of fame and and they've fallen out with the, the original drummer or the bass player oh there's and one guy left right yeah i don't want to do it you know, so, <laughs> yeah. and then you see the ones where they do it but they do it under under duress you know <laughs> and they don't talk to each other backstage we've all seen that right, stuff right. no um, we wouldn't want to see that Without being too, um, I don't know, I don't know. Um, it's not my position. I don't think Rockpile are really capable for many reasons, physical, mental, yeah. psychological, yeah. Yeah. of doing a tour. Mm. I don't think they could do it. So what's next for you, Will Birch? Ooh, well... I'm going to probably um, update my book, No Sleep Till Canby Island, uh, and write a bit more for it in order that I can re reissue that as a physical book because people do seem to want to get a hold of it. And it's selling for Amazon for like 200 bucks, you know. Mm. Although you can get it on a Kindle version. I did a Kindle version, but people want the physical with the photographs. So I might work on that. But I've got a few little things on the go. Um, but I don't think I'll be doing another sort of biography in a hurry. Um, but, you know, got a few things bubbling, so we'll see. <laughs> well, we would love to have you back uh, to discuss in detail No Sleep Till Canvey uh, Can Island. Uh, so you have an open invitation for that. Will Birch, uh, great book on Nick Lowe. Uh, thanks for being with us today on Deeper Digs in Rock. Thank you very much, Christian. Um, and. Um, to your to your friend there who doesn't yet know about the teeth but I will endeavor, I <laughs> you will get back to us on that i'll endeavor to find out yeah thanks very much and thanks very much for uh, talking about uh, the book on your uh, production thank you
Well, I hope you all enjoyed our conversation and perhaps learned at least a little something from the interview. Of course, if you haven't already and you want to know more uh, about Nick Lowe, you can listen to the rock and roll librarian, Shelly Sorensen, and I really dig into the book and the songs of Nick Lowe. And of course, most importantly, read Will's new book, Cruel to be Kind, The Life and Music of Nick Lowe, wherever you find your good reads. Yes, uh, Will got a twofer with us, but Nick Lowe, Rockpile, and even the UK pub rock scene, which spawned them, is uh, definitely deserving. So, now this whole British pub rock uh, is rather new to me. Uh, I don't know everything. That's why we're here. Um, well, okay, at least to put it all together. Uh, I certainly learned a lot. Uh, and sure, you know, we know many of the bands and artists that came out of the under this particular underground scene that never got out into the sunlight of pop stardom. As we know, it never hit big or spawned a huge following, and certainly not here in America, and not really even in the UK. Uh, this was uh, kind of localized in the London area. Uh, bands like Dr. Feelgood, you know, um, Eggs Over Easy. Still, this created the tide pools from which punk, uh, early new wave, and post-punk uh, flourished and created more worldwide stirs. And let's face it, Pub rock was uh, the first to reject the overproduced arena rock, uh, the complexity of prog, or the highly stylized glam genres that later 70s music successfully combated and swatted down, and many times uh, the originators of going up against the man uh, just kind of put their foot in the door, uh, create a crack that others blast through it. Anyway, I am always learning something new, and I hope you are too. That's the point of all of our Pantheon podcasts, music education. Um, well, okay, uh, music uh, edutainment at least. Okay, that's it for this episode. Next week, we will get into it uh, with Toby Scott, uh, who stops by the Pantheon Studios to talk about his life working as Bruce Springsteen's engineer for almost 40 years. And man, does he have some great insight and stories to tell. Come on back for that, diggers. All right, Christian Swain, the rock and roll archaeologist, signing off. Keep up the rockin'. And misery. Oh, yes. And each time I feel like this inside, there's one thing I want to know. What's so funny about peace, love, and understanding? Ooh, what's so funny about peace, love? And understanding Man, as I walk on Through trouble times Deeper Digs in Rocks Produced and hosted by Christian Swain All sound design and incidental music By Busy Signal Studios Find all of our shows, notes, social, and links at www.pantheonpodcast.com 
or wherever you listen to great podcasts. All songs can be found for purchase on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Please purchase these great and important tracks. Find us on Facebook at the RNRAP. We are on Instagram at RNR Archaeology. Tweet us at RNR Archaeology. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.